podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Anfield Index Writers Podcast. I am Tom Holmes, and sadly, no Leanne this week for the moment, but joining me is Adam Petrucian. Adam, how are you, my friend? Doing good, Tom, doing good. It's a great week to be a Liverpool fan. It is a fantastic week to be a Liverpool fan. And we're going to start with something a little bit different and a little bit out there, because Adam, you've written an article which is called FSG by a new club. So I'm going to let you... uh, Take it away and tell us a bit more about your article, which isn't, as it sounds, it's not an FSG out article. It's one of those FSG figure out articles. So I'll let you take it away and uh, just give us a bit of background as the article, what you're trying to get at, and then we can have a discussion about it. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So, you know, this past week or so, uh, uh, our buddy uh, James Pierce over the, at the Echo, he's been uh, up to his bad news best and uh, uh, and downplaying the rumors that have been ongoing for uh, Liverpool signing potentially signing Lamar and then the Allison deal yesterday uh, he shot that down in a, in a matter of hours and he's citing uh, price as at least a contributing factor in those deals and you know uh, I'm actually talking about in, a, in another sort of follow-on article that I'm doing for this week about um, all the money that that whether you want to call it Liverpool or FSG are putting into sort of the infrastructure projects around the club be it the the main stand or now uh, Anfield Road and on that end of the, of the stadium or um, uh, the Kirkby Complex. And it's a lot of money. You know, it's 200 million pounds or so when you, when you add it all up. And, um, you know, it just seems like whether they want to say it or not, there are some financial restrictions on the club. Uh, you know, when you sort of total up the uh, the spend in the, in the time period the club has been around, he's basically at a... At a Net zero or like even, even money in terms of, uh, ins and outs, right? So, um, you know, credit to him and, and how he's been able to raise the talent of the players that are already at the club and, and through his acquisitions as well. They've made a lot of smart buys, but they do seem to be, uh, under some spending constrictions. So, you know, this article is just sort of a little bit of a brainstorm on how they can close the gap if that stays in place you know these these uh building projects are going to be going on for the next three four years so how do we close the gap on city not let them run away with things um if those restrictions stay in place right so so one of my ideas was that we should have an official uh, feeder club not uh, not just a pretend feeder club like southampton is but uh something something official right um, and, and I thought about a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it's like a month ago now, we, uh, we signed Anderson Arroyo, the young Colombian, uh, I think he's 18 years old. Um, and then immediately loaned him out to Mallorca. And the reason that we did that was because he, uh, in order to get a player who doesn't have senior level international experience and all that, uh, a work permit, um, he needs to, either find a way to get European citizenship or um, get a certain amount of playing time in a European club. There's a few different ways or combinations of ways that uh, that you can get it. But anyways, what, what they're doing is uh, using sort of a loophole in uh, uh, European immigration rules. And, and Spain allows uh, people from the former uh, Spanish colonies to, to get citizenship within two years. So this Colombian kid... Is coming over. He's going on an 18 month or yeah, an 18 month loan, and then at the end of that loan, basically he'll be able to play for Liverpool. So, Mallorca is a third division club. Uh, so the experience that he's getting over there, who knows how good that's going to make him, how well he's going to progress. Uh, so my thought process is, you know, this is a talented kid. Uh, he's certainly got a shot based on. Some grainy YouTube clips that I've seen of him, but um, why not increase your odds, right? So if you had a club that we controlled, that we controlled the training, that we controlled uh, uh, the the schemes that he was learning, the, the the style of play and everything like that, and had a dozen Anderson Arroyos rather than just one, 
then for sure you'd be bringing through a couple of them every year rather than hoping that in two years we'll have one through maybe. So, so that's sort of the gist of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, let me know what you think. Let me know if you think that's a crazy idea that'll never happen or, you know, it's sort of, it's, it's also like based around the, the idea that we've seen with, with Manchester City sort of expanding this sort of global network of nine different clubs and, uh, that are all intertwined and they can use, they can use them to sort of skirt financial fair play rules with, uh, what they do with Frank Lampard and they can also use it to bring, uh, move players around and get them different, the kind of experience that they need to progress. And, and the same thing with Chelsea and Vitesse and the same thing with, uh, Red Bull, uh, Leipzig and, and Salzburg. And at the time it seemed as though, uh, there was restrictions in place with UEFA where you wouldn't be able to have two teams that were controlled essentially by the same entity be in the same competition, but Red Bull got around that. So, you know, a company like, uh, Fenway Sports Group with all their different entities. I'm sure they can figure a way around that if Red Bull did. So, so that's the gist of it. Let me know what you think. Um, yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting idea. I think there's obviously a lot of different financial, different business bits to sort of have a proper look at before we'd be able to have a chat about this, uh, you know, as a, as a plausible business model. The first thing I would say, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but I do think we've got to look at it slightly differently to the city model. Because the thing about the city model is, city the the people who own city, obviously uh, the, uh, the the uh, the sorry the Qatari business people, they are looking to um, build a dynasty. They're looking to build. It's very similar to the likes of PSG, the likes of Red Bull to an extent. What they're looking to do is they are looking to build an entire net they're looking to build a network they're not just looking to build a network they're looking to build like an entire entire i I use the word dynasty i think that really is the right word they're looking to create you know five six seven eight feeder clubs that they can all use to sort of build franchises across the world have a club on every continent be the big name in football across the globe if that makes sense and obviously the the city of the pinnacle of that so having other clubs funnel that money into city would eventually make city the the club in europe Whereas I'm not sure that's FSG's plan um, to an extent, just because for FSG it's not necessarily a symbol. People people like Red Bull, like the people who own City, like the people who own PSG. For them, it's very much sort of a status symbol. That part of the world, they see it as a my football club's bigger than your football club kind of thing. Whereas for Americans, they see it a lot more as kind of a sort of a financial thing. So with FSG particularly, I think they're looking at it going, what's the best way? to make money in the long term and I'm not necessarily sure that buying a feeder club is going to produce the outset the financial output that it's going to guarantee that is going to justify that financial input especially when you consider that from FSG's perspective they don't see Liverpool as necessarily the sort of the longer term sort of project if that makes sense because for say for example um, the Qatari group who own City or whoever else, they'll see themselves as still owning that club in 20, 30 years' time, pass it on to their kids so that their kids will be the big names in football. You know, they see that being something that they're building forever, whereas FSG are probably thinking, well, realistically, what we want to do is we want to max this club out in terms of financial stability. We want to make it a really, really attractive prospect. So I think there's a big difference between, for example, the facilities. Building the facilities is something like, that's just, you know, when you buy, it's it's standard sort of financial building work you know you, if you buy a house you spend five grand doing it up you then sell it for 20 grand more than it was worth in the first place that's just you know smart finance smart estate agency sure. you know that sure. sort of thing whereas with a foot, so it's the same sort of thing with a football club you you put an extra you invest an extra 20 200 million or whatever it is in the stadium then you can sell it on for um you can make more money back on ticket prices yes but then when you want to sell the club you've got a brand new state-of-the-art top stadium in the world to sell on as well so the stadium revenue projected is going to be higher. So overall, that's all building towards the club's overall um, equity, as a, in a sense. Um, whereas buying a second club is a very, very different prospect because it's very much sort of you can't sell, you can't buy and sell them as a package. You know what I mean? You can't say to a club, well, if you buy Liverpool, you have to buy this other smaller club. Say for example, Mallorca. Like you know. It's not to say that it would be a big... I agree with you to the extent that it's not necessarily a massive financial outlay. What it is sure. going to be is it's going to be a lot of effort to go to and ultimately it is going to cost quite a lot of money. 
just to essentially build up Liverpool's reserves. Because I mean, if you look at because if you look at Chelsea and you look at Man City, how many players do they have in their starting 11s? That like how many world class players have they got from their feeder clubs? Not I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, like obviously yeah, well, Leipzig, the Red Bull, Ch- Red Chelsea. Bull Chelsea might uh, regret the players that they haven't brought in from Vitesse, it seems like. But uh, let me make a couple of points on that. First, first of all, you know, I don't know. You know I'm going to break the hearts of the, the FSG outer uh, people in the audience, but um, I don't think I don't think Fenway Sports Group will sell the club in our lifetimes. To be honest with you, I don't think I think that there's so yeah, many par- I think there's so many parallels between. The Red Sox and Liverpool, just the personality of both, uh, franchises and their global reach and the way that they're set up. I just think it probably makes a heck of a lot of sense to those guys to hold on to it. Plus they've never sold any other entity that they have within that portfolio. So I think they're around for, for a while, but, but, um, the other thing is when they bought the Red Sox, it's not just the Boston Red Sox. It's all their, like they have uh, like six different uh, minor league entities in the United States that uh, come along with that. Um, so, you know, they own like the Pawtucket Reds or, you know, there's like, there's like all these little offshoot uh, small town, small city franchises that, that are the feeder teams for their, for their baseball franchise in the United States. And, um, you know, so it's not a model that would be unfamiliar to them. I do, I do agree with you that they're not, you know, I, I said in the article, like, it's not even really proven yet. Who knows whether or not City's model will make sense to them. It might just be like a massive, uh, you know, uh, sinkhole for, for cash, which they have tons of. So who cares? But, you know, for, but for FSG, I would see them doing more like Chelsea or Red Bull, where it's just a one club situation where they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, I mean, and, and the, the thing is too with the, Premier League teams, you've got, you know, you have under 23s in the whole like youth system there. So this would just be sort of like a bridge, right? I mean, like you could, the way I would envision it, if let's say it was Mallorca, you know, if you bought a club like that and maybe they make it into the second division in, in Spain and then you have, let's say 10, 12 people that you bring over from Latin American countries and then, uh, you sp- send three, four down. Like the, the guys like Harry Wilson, who you're sort of reticent to send out on loan, but they're too good for the under 23s, like that type of player. You know, if there's no spot for them at the senior team, why not send them to, to a, a club that you control to be able to uh, improve them, hopefully. So, uh, so then like you send a few, you'd have to have like a handful of Spanish players on the team as well. So, um, so that would be the way that it would run in theory for me, you know, and, and yeah, the cost of the franchises is another thing that, you know, I looked up a few of these, um, the recent, uh, club sales that have gone on in, in Spain and France and some of the other com- countries on the continent, even like in the, um, in the championship and stuff like that in England, but they're not expensive to say the least. Some of the teams in France are selling to like Chinese conglomerates for, like 10 million euros and stuff like that. So it's not, uh, it's like, it would be nothing to FSG to, to set it up. So, uh, you know, so it, it seems feasible to me. I think it's more of like, uh, how would they staff it? How would they be able to control it? You know, and, and, and obviously it's easier with the language barrier and, uh, uh, non-existent in England. So, um, who knows how well they feel like they would be able to control a club that was uh, in a Spanish speaking country or any other, you know, whether it was in France or Germany or who knows. So, um, so that could be a barrier, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you are looking at about 20, 30 million quid for like a middle sized uh, second division club in most countries in Europe now. So that is a sort of price, but it, I know what you mean. It's slightly, you know, the price is going to be more than just the club, isn't it? It's like you say, if you're going to, cause if you're going to buy a club like that, you've got to renovate it properly. You're not just buying a club for the sake of buying the club. You want to buy, like again, it's almost like a mini project. So you've got to invest a lot of money in that club to make it so that it's uh, its youth system, its scouting department, all the kind of stuff that will make it an ideal feeder club are all sort of up to scratch. And obviously, you've got obviously there's clubs that are clubs of that size self-sustainable to make profit. It's a difficult question to ask. Um, I do agree with you though. I do think it's a case of I do think it's a good idea. 
And I also think it's not necessarily like the case that FSG would have to go big to do it either. I think I totally agree with you with the idea they could just buy like one extra middle-sized club. And the other thing I wanted to say about, um, I mean, is I am 100% on board for Liverpool trying something different to try and find a way to bypass certain rules or to try and find a way to sort of find a way around certain problems. I think the um, stuff like, as you say, the Arroyo uh, move where he's being fast-tracked in Spain is the sort of thing I'd like to see Liverpool do more of, just be a little bit more savvy in the market, be a little bit more intelligent with the way they're buying and selling. And if it all ends up working better in the long run in terms of coalescing, I think that's really good. As I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea. It's just something I can't necessarily see FSG taking up. I just don't think it fits the model of what we've seen of them investing in Liverpool up until this point. I certainly, plus, as you say, I think it is just a model that hasn't necessarily got guaranteed results yet. I think it's worth a try, but I'm, here's the other thing where I kind of, here's the other sort of thing where I kind of disagree with you, Adam. Uh, and I've got kind of two points here. The first one is, well, if we're saying they don't, they're not, they're not willing to spend enough money on players, why would they be willing to spend like another, <laughs> another, you know, even, even more money on a club? Like, you know what I mean? That's just sort of a. I, I, I agree with you that they probably wouldn't be the, the first ones out of the gate with us, right? Like, um, I bet they'd wait for two or three more clubs to, to do something like this before they moved. They seem like, uh, they, they really like to get the lay of the land before they make a, any, any type of major move. So, uh, so I agree with you there. Um, you know, plus UEFA, like I said, is not super clear about what, what the rules actually are. And we've seen the same thing with FFP. You know, I think, uh, Fenway Sports Group thought they were coming into a much more favorable position for Liverpool. Uh, vis-a-vis those types of financial fair play rules, and uh, they found out that that's not exactly the case. But um, you know, they seem to be managing through it. But uh, <laughs> you know, I think they're they're probably disappointed by that, and uh, yeah, so they might be like hesitant to try and like make a major play to, to skirt the rules in, in some other way. Yeah, I agree with that. And um, they everything we've seen from them up until this point as owners implies that they're quite cautious, and they are. I kind of take the point where they're sort of playing the long game a bit, where they're not willing to do something crazy that would put the club in jeopardy, which I respect because I, we've had owners before that have kind of spent too much money and got themselves in trouble. Um, the other thing that I kind of want to disagree with you on here, and I, I'm sure you won't necessarily fully agree with us, is that I think the project's actually working. I mean, we can talk about how Liverpool might need to find new ways to get players, but I think the project is working really, really well because we don't need to spend... You know, we don't need to go out and each summer spend 50 million on five or six players. Okay, it's working for Man City, but it's only working as well as it is for Man City because they've got the right person doing it. Because let's be real here, I've talked about this before. City have spent a lot of money on a lot of players over a long time. And the only way it's been able to coalesce into a decisive sort of statement is when they brought in the best manager in world football. So it's not as if... Right. It's not as if City have, it's not as if City have been able to just go out and buy the title because they have more money. They've went out because they haven't spent significantly more in context compared to United and Chelsea. It's just that they've got someone who knows exactly what he wants, knows what he's doing. And we've got a similar side of setup with Klopp. We've got someone who knows what he wants to do, knows the way he wants to do it, and is really, really good. And what Klopp is doing is working really, really well. So I'm not necessarily sure we need to go out and try something outside of the box to kind of break the mould and to, to compete with the likes of City. Because I do think what we have, it's okay, fine. It's not necessarily working to the extent that we are going to be winning the title this year. But we're getting closer and closer every year. And the amount, the players that we're buying are all really, really, really intelligent buyers. And we haven't needed to buy five or six players each summer. And I know I know you think that, and I know you say in the article that, that the reason that we're not spending the Coutinho money is because we don't necessarily have as much as we, well, like we're playing that we do. But I don't think that's necessarily fair. I do think that it's a case we will spend money on the right players in the summer. I do think because I'm not sure be funny, but Lamar's price tag is is too high. Monaco, 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 Monaco are talking ninety million. Monaco are talking ninety million. If that's that's too much for Lamar. He's not he's not a ninety million pound player. He's just not. No, I mean there, we were, ta- are, we were talking are, about there are better, more reasonable priced options out there. Yeah, we were talking about this in the WhatsApp group that uh, the the record signing for a goalkeeper for Liverpool is like uh, nine million plus 
two and add-ons or something like that for for Mignolet. So, uh, you know, to jump from that to the eighty million I, range that's being I, talked I about would for, be, for I would be a fan of spending a lot of money on Allison, but I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would just be it would be uh, it would be something if, if that happens. But yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'll spoil some of the parts of the the new article that I have coming out, so you don't have to invite me out next week. But um, <laughs> you know, I mean. I just think Spurs, you know, they have all these building projects going on with a new stadium and everything like that. And you see them use that as sort of like a crutch every time they have a player who's whining about uh, uh, needing like a salary bump or whatever. They come out with, well, you know, geez, we'd love to, but the stadium is costing us so much money. We just don't have that right now. And yada, yada, yada. Woe is me. But. You know, Liverpool tries to sort of like have it both ways. They they try to play it like, you know, they want the credit for doing all these things to build the stadium, but they don't want you to think that they're hard up for cash because they're building the stadium. It's sort of a weird uh, way that they're doing it. I feel like if they were just more <laughs> straightforward about it and said, you know, we have money, but we don't have all the money that you'd think that we might have because we're doing this, this, and this, I think fans would buy into that i mean obviously it must be like popular around liverpool that they're doing all these uh things that are there are major improvements that have been needed at the club for a long time i assume that those things are uh uh are popular around town and not just with the fan base around the world but um you know so th- these are like important things that are going on it's not just nothing that they're building new training facilities and, and rebuilding half of the stadium but um you know, so I just I, I guess I wish that they would be just a little bit more honest about the financial situation they're in because I just don't buy it that Klopp just doesn't want to spend the money. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't doesn't fly really logically when there's you know the situation last year with with Mane going to Afcon and after Coutinho left. I mean, there's just you know he'll he'll he's an amazing manager and he like turns. Uh, you know, I say in the article, he just, you know, he turns straw into gold, but he needs like to have the straw in the first place to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's just, what can you say? He's doing an incredible job with the players that, that he has, but it just, uh, he has to recognize that there are certain weaknesses that could be filled if, let's say, all the Coutinho money was available to him. And, you know, We'll never know. I mean, you know, they'll spend money in the summer because they're making a lot of money being in the Champions League and finishing high in the Premier League and everything else. So, you know, I don't know how it'll ever be clear whether they actually have the Coutinho money or not at this point. I think, here's the thing, I think we have, I I think you're slightly overstating it because I don't necessarily think that, for example, not wanting to spend 90 million on a player who isn't 90 million quid equates to us not having the money to spend 90 million quid on a, on a player who isn't that good. I think I, I agree with you to the extent that we maybe don't have th- as much money as we say we do, but I still think we have quite a lot of money. I just think if you're looking at, I just think we're spending the money more intelligently. I really think it's that simple because it's not as if we're afraid to spend money. Like we went out and spent 75 million on Van Dyke because Van Dyke was the player that Klopp wanted, the, Klopp that, the, the player that Klopp said, this is my player. I think Klopp said he wants Lamar, but I think the club have said to him, well, this is the price for Lamar. What other options are there? Because realistically, Lamar's not a 90 million quid player. And I think Klopp knows that. I think Klopp is willing to compromise with the club so that they're willing to spend a reasonable amount of money on reasonable players. And I don't think turning down 80 million for a goalkeeper or 90 million for Lamar is necessarily the club not having the money. It's just the club being sensible because it's, we're not, whilst we are not, I don't think we're like Spurs in the sense that we have to be super duper frugal. Equally, we're not a city or a United where, where a club can go, this is our price in the club, and they can go, yeah, all right. Well, no, you're right. Even, I, even I think city, you're right. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in between, yeah. Even City have been more intelligent with the money that they've spent in this window. In January, they were not willing to pay 35 million in Sanchez's wages. They weren't willing to do it. Our, both Arsenal and Leicester played hardball with City in this window because they thought that if they thought that because of City's finances, they could play hardball and demand unrealistic prices for players who were not who were not good enough and City turned around and told them to stuff it. Granted, City are in a better position squad-wise than us, but the point still stands that if you know it's we're not the only club who necessarily are playing hardball with prices when the prices are unreasonable. Sure. And I don't think and I think here's the thing, I think a lot of Liverpool players are getting caught up in this idea that we have to spend money. And it really frustrates me because I think a lot of Liverpool, Liverpool players aren't a lot of Liverpool fans, sorry, aren't necessarily being business savvy about this enough. 
And I appreciate that as fans, it's not our job to be business savvy, but we can't then criticise the club for not spending 90 million on good players, but not phenomenal players. Because, I mean, it's, you know, it's just the way the world is. We can't be like, well, we want to spend 90 million on Lamar and we want to spend 80 million on Alisson and we want to have enough for a new centre-back. Oh, yeah, we also need to replace Emery Chan and then turn around and be like, well, where's all the money? The, you know, we need to be sensible. If we want a good goalkeeper, if we want a new centre-back to partner Van Dijk, if we want a world-class central midfielder to replace Emre Chan, slash Felipe Coutinho, we can't spend 90 million on Lamar, 80 million on Alisson. Because we have money, but we don't have that much money. Like, the, Phil, if Phil was a, even if Phil was 140 million, right? which is what he was. Even if we spent all of that on Lamar and a goalkeeper, we'd still be 30 million in debt. And that's before you even looked at the other areas of the squad that need strengthening. So it's not, you know, for me, it's not as simple as the club don't have the money because we're not willing to spend unreasonable prices. I, we're getting slightly off topic here, but I do think sure. that it's just a case of... I think one, one, I, of the things, one of the things that sort of makes me laugh is just the, the narrative that uh, the club, <laughs> what is it, he'll, he'll only... He just he'll wait until the perfect signing comes along, and then otherwise he's just not going to sign anybody. Which to me is sort of ludicrous because when is that? When has he waited to sign somebody with just just well, he's Van Dyke? With both, he's waited with both Naby and Van Dyke. I don't. I don't. Well, he, did, he signed. He signed. He signed Naby in the window that he was, he was trying to, wait. Yeah, to sign. He's, willing, he's, he's, willing he's to staying out. He's staying out on loan. I get it, but you know, I mean the. The the Van Dyke situation, you know, maybe we waited like two three months for to complete that signing, but you know, it's like now this whole narrative is built around like, oh, you know, Klopp's just such a he's such an honest guy, and he just wants he has his targets, and then if those targets aren't available, he'll wait for those targets. Like that's not real. You know? It's not. I don't get me wrong. I don't think it's I don't think it's the case that every single target Klopp picks like three players and then that's it. But there are certain players where Klopp is not willing to compromise, and I think that's absolutely bang on. Look, Van Dijk is a player where Klopp went, look, this player is perfect for our system, he is perfect for the squad, he is the player we need, and he is going to be available, we have to get him. And he's not, and I, I completely agree with that. I, I mean, why, there weren't any other centre-backs even close to Van Dijk available in the summer, and I absolutely agree with that sort of thing. And Keita, again, Keita is such a perfect player for the system, and such a perfect player in general, it's absolutely bang on the Klopp will wait for him. Klopp's not willing. Klopp, I don't think it's as simple as Klopp's willing to like wait for Lamar. I don't think it's that straightforward. I don't think Lamar is on is of that caliber. I think it's more likely that Liverpool, that Liverpool, basically, I think Arsenal have kind of screwed us here because we wanted to get Lamar in the summer. Arsenal bid ninety million. We want to get him now. The ninety million Arsenal bid is still the ballpark. We can't now sell. They can't now sell him for less. If we want to sign him again in the summer, we might be looking at that amount. And I think it's just as simple as with Lamar. It's a case of wait, waiting to see if the price goes down, and if the price doesn't, we'll sign someone else. I really, I don't think Lamar is in that same caliber. But equally, I don't think you can just write off the fact that that Klopp is willing to wait for the right player. Klopp is Klopp would rather sign the right. Klopp would rather sign nobody than the wrong player. And sure. FSG have I'll... to be in FSG to an extent have to take that attitude because they've spent poorly in the past, and they're recognizing now that the best way to mitigate doing that kind of stupid things is just to not spend lots of money on stupid signings. I'll give you an example that I use in this new article. That's, um, you know, Manchester City, they uh, tried to sign Fred uh, from, from Shakhtar in the, in the January window, couldn't get the deal done. And then a couple weeks go by and they announced that he's signing for them in the summer. But nobody's turning around and saying, "Oh, Pep is uh, the patient one. He's, uh, you know, he's he's willing to wait for his targets." You know, nobody's saying that about uh, Guardiola. So, I don't know. It's it's uh, I, I I get it with Van Dyke, but I think that to make this uh, like a broad brush, uh, that you know, he he will wait for all of his key targets. I just don't think is realistic, especially like with Salah wasn't his first target in terms of a winger that he wanted to bring in. I think it was the third, reportedly. So. It's a genie, to be fair. Good, good thing that worked out. <laughs> no, I mean, I do, I do agree with you. I mean, Mane and Mane and Genie are other examples. I think the point is, with key signings, with key individuals, Klopp is willing to wait, but that doesn't mean he's always willing to wait. I don't, that's what I mean, Matt. I right. say I don't think, I don't think Lamar is a key player. I, I, I don't think Lamar is the perfect player for the system, but I don't think Klopp is... It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate, as you said. I mean, I think Lamar has sort of like played his way out of being a key target because I think 
when you saw him play with him, Bob, uh, it was, you could sort of envision where if you replace, if you put Mane in that position, he was just so good at threading those balls through to, uh, very speedy counterattacking players. And obviously you could easily envision that working if you put him in Coutinho's place in Liverpool. So, you know, and he just did that so well last year and this year with, uh, lesser players on the team in Monaco. It's it's not happening as frequently for him. So, you know, I'm sure it's given people second thoughts. It's, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell with a different mix of players if he's not as talented as we thought he was last year or what. But, you know, I can understand why it gives Liverpool pause at that price tag for sure. No, he's not playing like an Ironman Impact player this, this season. I completely agree. Um, I think we'll move on because we've, we've covered a lot of areas of this topic. And I do fundamentally agree with your article. I think it's a really, really good idea. I'm just, I'm just not necessarily sure how practical it is in the sense of FSG. That, that would be my thoughts on it. I think it's a really, really good idea. I'm just not sure how practically it could relate to something what FSG are doing. But I'll let you have the final word on that's that. Probably, that's probably something where, like, yeah, you know, they'll think about it in about ten years. After ten years of analysis, <laughs> they'll they'll consider doing it, but uh, probably not going to happen next year. No, probably not. Um, so we'll move on to talk about Leanne's article, which was about Firmino and Salah, and it's called The Latest in a Long Line of Deadly Deadly LFC Duos. And she's kind of picking up on how in Liverpool, in the last like last decade or so of Liverpool, we've had these kind of, well, beyond that, we've had this kind of this kind of partnerships. You've had Jaheski and Owen, then it was Gerard and Torres, then it was, of course, SAS. And um, this season, to an extent, it's been the Fab Four. And now it's looking like the partnership is Firmino and Salah. So, I mean... You know, she talks about how in 2007-8 we had Gerard and Torres becoming a 54-goal partnership where where Torres scored 33 and Steven, Stevie scored 21. Then, of course, everyone knows how phenomenal SAS were uh, when they uh, obviously scored that insane amount of goals in 13-14. Um, in then um, when Suarez left and all that kind of stuff. And then she goes on to talk about how we're looking at this kind of new duo after the Fab Four is kind of as the season has gone on, the Fab Four has kind of disillusioned into this 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 new duo where you've got Firmino and Salah, and of course Salah now has 30 goals for the season. Bobby has 20, so they look set to match, if not surpass, um, the, the the tallies picked up by Gerard and Torres, and then of course by by Suarez and Sturridge. Um, now they've got 51 between them this season. Um, I mean, we could quite easily see it be 40 and 30. They could easily get 70 between them by the time the season's over, given... We've got maybe 15, 20 games left, depending on exactly how far we go in the Champions League. Um, so, uh, so, Adam, what were your thoughts on the article? And what are your thoughts on uh, Firmino and Salah's season so far? And, of course, uh, looking forward. Yeah, well, after the, I guess the Porto match sort of blew that article out of the water, right? Because now we're back to the, uh, the the Fab Three or whatever, <laughs> whatever we want to call them. But, um, no, I mean, obviously, uh, Firmino and Salah have been just... Unbelievable this year and, and, uh, long may I continue. You know, there was, there was sort of a point I remember on some of our earlier pods back in the fall where, uh, you know, we were having the debate of do Liverpool need a real, uh, uh, not fake false nine or whatever. <laughs> you know, for me, I was having like a, he yeah, went like a month without scoring and, um, now it just seems like, how is that even possible? Uh, no, they've been great to watch and they seem to be improving week by week, which is, which is great to see. And her, and Leanne's article was great. You know, just sort of reminiscing about some of the great, uh, partnerships. You know, I think, I think she left out, uh, Lambert and Barini, but, uh, aside from that, it was pretty thorough. Um, no, I mean, probably Sturridge, Sturridge and Suarez is uh, probably my favorite. Just seeing them, just the way that they terrorize people, the way that, uh, you could tell just, from watching on TV, like how just desperately afraid the, the the opposing center backs were of those two, and and Sterling as well to an extent. So, um, so yeah, it was a great article. Good, good to reminisce, and that's that makes you appreciate uh, what we're seeing now as well. I mean, I guess the big difference between this season and the SAS, I think, kind of maybe maybe two key differences. I think the first key difference is. Um, the quality of the goals, and that's no disrespect to Bobby and Salah, who've scored some fantastic goals between them, particularly Salah, but it felt at times in 13-14 that every goal that Suarez or Sturridge was scoring was an absolute worldie. Like, they'd be hitting him in from 40 yards, they'd be chipping the keeper from outside the box, 
They'd be doing that. They'd be pinging volleys. I mean, Suarez headed one from the edge of the box against West Brom for Christ's sake. That was just unreal. But you know what I mean? Like it felt like right. every other goal they were scoring yeah. was a worldie, whereas we're not necessarily getting that this season. And then the You're right. Team, there was a little. There was a little bit of an aspect of like a game within a game where they were competing against each other uh, for the best goals or who could score the most goals. Versus uh, versus now it's like really just pure teamwork, which is nice to see as well. I mean, yeah, I, know, I exactly completely agree. There's a different kind of attitude about the club. Work with Suarez and Sturridge, there was almost like this drive, this hunger, this kind of breathtaking sort of arrogance about the way they were both just going at it. I mean, they played really well together, but they were both just there. Like, we, we need to be like, you know, whereas this season, there's, it's more of a fluid, cohesive, like you said, teamwork. I mean, you look at some, I mean, the last two games are the perfect examples of that. When you look at Salah and Firmino, not just scoring great goals, but combining brilliantly Bobby's back heels, Salah's passing. So there's some really, really top quality team goals on display rather than the sort of phenomenal individual efforts we'd see. I think the other thing is maybe we're not kind of appreciating them as much because of the league, because the league performance is not title winning, if that makes sense. Because obviously in 13, we weren't just wrapped up in the amount of goals we were scoring and the quality of the goals. There was this undercurrent of, oh my God, we're actually in a title race here. We could actually go and win this thing which isn't necessarily present this season, even if the quality of the goal and the quantity of the goal is maybe going to be along similar lines. I mean, we are. it does look inevitably like we're going to score less goals than we did in 13-14, but not by a significant amount, I would say. So um, what would you say about that? Do you think it is just a case that maybe if these two actually led us towards a trophy, maybe, well, maybe, maybe we'll see it in the Champions League this year after that final demolition of Porto, that we might actually start to get this that sort of magical feeling rather than just being an appreciation of the quality. Yeah, you know, if we're able to, I would say if we're able to progress past the next round, uh, then they would probably be seen along the same lines. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting on uh, Nina's interview with Gab Marcati the other day. They were talking, they were talking about the Salah signing and what he think seeing him now versus what he thought in the summer and he was saying uh, that he didn't really anticipate him being able to press as well uh, uh, or play as well in a pressing system as he has and that's a huge credit to him as well like you know you just think about some of the goals that he scored where you know he just steps out into the passing lane and, and steals some ball runs 50 yards you know it's it's uh it's been amazing to see, and, and like I said, you know, he he for sure is progressing week to week. Firmino, it seems like he's. I think the thing with him is he's figuring out the balance of, you know, how much do I need to track back and how much do I need to actually be a striker, like like we've talked about. So, and he seems, you know, we're, we're earlier in the season, it just seemed like it wasn't clear what he needed to do to really make the team go i mean he's he's got it now i mean now now he does both now he tracks back and he also knows how to time um his runs forward and and i mean this what can you say it's amazing um you know but uh it looks like we're gonna see a late charge from Saudi Amani and uh you know if he can score three at a time how many games it'll, will it take him to catch up to those guys maybe like Eight or ten, <laughs> something like that. I'm not know. sure he's catching up. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I think you've touched on two brilliant, brilliant points there. The first with Salah is that you know Salah has kind of pressed better than we thought. Whereas, he, whereas on the other on the other side of the, I mean, it, a lot of people see it as Bobby does the pressing, Salah does the goals. Increasingly, it's looking like you know Bobby obviously presses better and Salah obviously scores better, but there's a lot of everything involved in everyone's play, which there has to be in a Klopp system. You know, there has to be in a Klopp a cop way of doing it. I think, you know, it is easy to turn around and go, well, anybody who thought Bobby Firmino didn't score enough goals was clearly talking nonsense. That's not necessarily, it's not a fair criticism, is it? I mean, obviously we can look back and laugh at, oh, oh, people who thought we needed a 30 goal a season striker, but Bobby wasn't a 30 goal a season striker before this season. So it's not as if, it's not, that's not to say that his, that's not to say his improvement of goals has come out of nowhere, but he has certainly improved is the point I would make. You know, he has clearly scored more goals this season evidently and that's partly because of the system but it's like you say he's starting to find that balance more I think Brundish touched on it but like look at the first goal against um, Southampton that's not the sort of goal we would be seeing Bobby Firmino scoring where he's busting a gut to get into the positions to score those goals and um, I talked about this with Ollie on the post-match pod actually on Wednesday 
he mentioned he because he asked me is Bobby getting is Bobby's getting more clinical or is he just getting in position better scoring positions and the answer is both he's got a better xg to goal ratio but he's also got um a higher xg so it's kind yeah, of, it seems, of both, isn't it, it seems to me you definitely see him getting into better position maybe it's just luck i don't know but i mean he's <laughs> how many like no no look goals or just tap-ins does he have recently so but he scored some good that's finishes got, that's got to be part of it yeah no, he's definitely, his finishing's definitely improved i mean you look at the two goals against um southampton and porto again these are both brilliant examples of what we're talking about they're not easy finishes. They look like good chances, but they're not easy finishes. He makes them look easy, and I'm pretty sure at least one of them was on his left foot as well. So he's making it look easier than maybe he would have done last season. And that's yeah, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll hold my hand up and say, like, I was one of the guys who thought that, you know, we needed, like, a real 20-plus uh, goal a season striker at one point. I mean, my, my feelings have, like, evolved from it from, yeah, during, uh, what was it, October when he went a month without scoring there and um you know at that point i mean listen you could always see bobby's value on the pitch i never thought that he shouldn't be in the 11 but i just thought he should have been in what until now is his natural position of sort of whether you want to call it a ton or off support striker whatever um you know and then we started playing in further into the winter sala more as the actual striker and then Bobby was sort of in that support striker role, but he was supporting Salah. And then they both sort of took off at that point, and now Bobby's taking a more prominent role back as the striker. You see Salah scoring a little bit more from wide, and they sort of just rotate back and forth. Uh, you know, and sort of like up until last night, or up until the Porto match, I was thinking... Maybe they still need a 20-plus goal a season striker, but he just needs to play in Mane's position on the left. And now, now maybe that's that's not the case. So I don't know. Whatever whatever it is, uh, you know, we're doing really well right now. So uh, it's I feel fortunate to be watching these guys all in uh, top form. So you know, if they can continue it the the rest of the way, and we can uh, count on them being healthy without any other competitions aside from uh, Champions League and the Premier League. So. Uh, you know, hopefully they can hold it together and then we can make a play for second and who knows how far in the Champions League. I think, I mean, second in the Premier League and the semi-finals of the Champions League, by anyone's metric, that's a good season. That is a good season if we can get, if we can get those two achievements and we're getting closer by the game. Um, one, one, one thing I did want to say, because you talk about how Salah's, uh, scoring more goals. Salah's goal scoring has improved. That's the scary thing for me. He's in his opening, in his first 12 games for Liverpool. He only scored six goals and one assist, which is still great, but that's only half. And he didn't score, and he, he's failed to score or assist in nine games for Liverpool in his Liverpool career so far. Six of those were in that first twelve games. Since then, it's he's averaging a goal a game, and he's only not contributed in three games, and he's notching more and more assists as well. In his last ten games, he's got ten goals, four assists. So his goal, his goal metric is getting better, has got better. And it's, it, it, there was almost a bedding in period of about 10, 10, 15 games. I think 12 games is the number that I kind of picked on, which, which to be fair, is also... So it, it's... And the question you ask yourself is, that, well, that's, the, that's before the Spurs game. After the Spurs game, that's when Salah hits off. So is it, is it a case of, you know, Salah scoring more goals because Liverpool have settled into a system which has become ruthlessly effective since Spurs? Or is it a case that Liverpool have become so effective since Spurs because after that 10-15 game betting in period, Salah stopped being a great player and became something truly different? Uh, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, I imagine Bobby would have a similar sort of ratio. It, I think a lot of people will say that opening spell wasn't great. I think, I think a better argument is that as much as we kind of wrote off this argument that Salah needed time to get adjusted to the Premier League, because... His thing, a lot. So many people see Salah hitting the ground running and think, "Well, Salah hasn't needed any time to adjust to the Premier League." I think that's wrong. I think Salah did need time to adjust to the Premier League. He's just, he was just so good, and we'd had that little bedding in period already. That the bedding in period of about 10, 15 games, Salah was still playing really well, it, and was still scoring goals. It's just that when he, when he actually settled, and when the team settled, and to be fair, that opening spell was also kind of disjointed because of the injuries and suspensions to Mane and Coutinho. But once that sort of betting in period was over, 
that's when it really kicked on. And I think, so I think it's, it's as strange as it might seem to say, I think Salah did actually need some time to adjust to the Premier League. It's just the case that, you know, he's such a good player that that, as I say, that Benningham period just resulted in him only scoring a goal every two games as opposed to a goal every game, which is what the difference is. And you can see that tangible effect on the results. I mean, Hamza talked a lot about our XG during that sort of bad period where we were drawing too many games where we weren't looking great, but we were still doing enough to win games. And it is just the case that actually, after that spell, everything kind of came together in a tangible way. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, it's, it's scary for the rest of the league and for the, the rest of the teams in the Champions League that we're hitting form right now. And I, part of me thinks that there's even a little bit more to go because if you remember those first few games of the, of the Premier League season, just the speed that Mane and Salah were showing both at the same time, they were both outlets on both wings for us. And, you know, we were just hit outlet balls to them and, and, they would just run for, you know, 20, 30 yards to catch up to the ball and, and no defender could stay with them. And I, I don't know if they, I guess with Mane, you think it's injuries and Salah, maybe at some point they just decided it wasn't a fantastic idea to have him running like that every game. But they haven't been doing that as much recently. And then, you know, this game against Porto, uh, you certainly seem just to my naked eye, that the Mane was uh, using his speed quite a bit more than he has in recent weeks and uh, and had great results for him. Also, the interesting thing was he was playing a lot more centrally um, and seemed to be a lot more comfortable with that. I don't know if you saw like the post-game uh, comments with him where he was sort of doing that uh, one-on-two interview with, uh, with Carragher there, and they were asking him if he was uncomfortable playing on the left because he'd played on the right uh, previously, and he, he sort of uh, hesitated there as if to say that he wasn't very comfortable on the left. So that was kind of interesting. I don't know if I'm reading too much into that or what you thought of that time. Um, I certainly think he's not as comfortable on the left. Um, I mean, I've said as I've said before on on various pods, I'm I do think that might be affecting his form slightly. And I think uh, it's always hard to criticise a player who's just got a hat trick, but I do think it does him a disservice to suggest that his general play is as good as it could be, which I think is probably a fair way of phrasing it. Um, it's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, I certainly think he is... I mean, it, you know, I, I do think it's maybe a little bit unfair on Mane to single out Firmino and Salah, but they are the two that have been so good this season. But I certainly think it's noticeable that even without Mane, I think we... It's been interesting. I think we've been able to cope without... How do I phrase this? If you look at which two of the Fab Four we've been able to cope the best without, you would say Firmino and Salah have been the two that we've needed to play together the most. Um, if you look, I think if you look at over the course of the season, when we've been missing at least one of those two, potentially, to be fair, it could just be the case that it's just Salah. But when we've been missing at least one of those two, that's when things have started to go a bit wrong. And admittedly, the two have played almost every game, so it's quite hard to make any tangible uh, notice. But it is noticeable that when we've been missing Mane or when we've been missing Coutinho, those two have been more than sufficient to win games themselves and have been more than sufficient on a number of occasions to be just fantastic players. Um, I want to go back to the sort of the more historical element of Leanne's article. And I want to uh, briefly talk to you about Torres and Gerard and get some, get some of your thoughts on those two because they were a different kind of partnership in a sense because obviously Gerard, I think that was the season where Rafa was able to really sort of, uh, the combination where Rafa was really able to say, all right, we've got Alonso and Mascherano playing a bit deeper you're basically free to do whatever you want, go and combine with Fernando. And obviously Gerard took up a very different role, but a very, very fantastic role that he obviously did so well. So what were your thoughts on on the Torres-Gerard partnership just briefly before we, uh, before we finish up? Yeah, you know, I mean, just from a numbers perspective, we talked about this briefly, I forget what the context was a couple of weeks ago, but the numbers that Torres put up with when he was playing with Stevie you know, results-wise, it was great. But in terms of comparing it to these guys now, he wasn't putting up anywhere close to the same numbers. So uh, when you talk about, I guess, how painful it was to lose him versus Coutinho or uh, Suarez or something like that, 
you know, he just wasn't as prolific, but at the same time, the defense uh, was on a totally different level, right? So it, it was it was a different it was a different team, wasn't it? We, we there different was less, style, yeah. When you, I mean, yeah, both Broad and Klopp are a lot more attacking styles than sure. than, than we were under under Rafa. But I take yeah, I mean, I would compare it more to what we've seen recently, I guess, with Hazard and Casa playing together, and you know, in terms of the amount that they scored, wasn't prolific, uh, but it was plenty for what. Chelsea needed to win titles. So, um, you know, so, so it's just a different kind of thing. It's a little bit hard to compare, but you know, what, what is comparable, I guess, from that era to this is that those two had sort of like a psychic connection, right? And it seems that, uh, Salah and, um, Firmino are sort of developing that in the same way that, that Sturridge and Suarez did as well. I mean, that was, that's the thing that sort of, that's the thread, I guess, that ties those three together. Yeah, I think I think it's a different kind of psychic relationship though. Because I mean, you talk about psychic relationship. I think what what it was with with Torres and Gerrard, it was just a case of knowing your striker. With Gerrard, he knew the sort of aggressive runs Torres would make, so he knew where to put the ball. It was like you put the ball in behind the defender, you know Torres is going to run to it. With Torres, with Suarez and Sturridge, it was very similar. It's like you put the, where would it was very much like where would I want the ball to go if I was running on, you know, if I was the striker. In, if I was in Danny's position, or if I was in Louis' position, where would I want the ball to go? And then they'd stick it there. With Firmino and Salah, it's a lot more interesting because the type of passes that they play and the type of movement that they use, it's a lot more unpredictable, which is what makes it so interesting. I mean, we talked before about how the movement of this defence, this, this attack, sorry, makes it an absolute nightmare for defenders. But I think that's what makes it more interesting because you can see with Salah and Firmino, they do have to be a little bit more quick on the uptake. And that's part of why I think we make so many poor decisions in our attacking play because we are so unpredictable and there's so many different options that often often we end up out overthinking it sure. or often no, we just right. end up or often we just end up not quite having the uh it's a case you know either the, the feet can't catch up with the brain or the brain can't catch up with the feet or vice versa and it's just a case of why it breaks down but when it comes off it just looks very very different to the more sort of aggressive kind of partnership that we would have seen with the other two now so much of the scoring for uh suarez as well as torres was Figuring out, and they both had different ways of going about it, but sort of figuring out uh, the time to make the run and, and running off of the, the last shoulder of the defender. And yeah, the, these guys now, they're, they just don't do that. It's like that's too easy an option for them. They want to find like a more creative way to score than, than doing that, right? With, with, Sal- with Salah, I don't think he's just so quick. With Salah, it's not a case of timing the run, it's just a case of play the pass, then let Salah run, because he's so quick, he doesn't need to time the run to beat defenders. Absolutely. He just he needs the ball need to, to be it. in the right yeah. area. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, as long as you put the ball in the right area, then Salah can just run. His mid... Yeah. I mean, Salah's pace is just... I mean, the, the Spurs, the first goal against Spurs is just a classic example of that. It's not a great back pass, but there is, like, Salah makes average back passes look really risky. I've seen this quite a few times when I watch him play, and a team will just play a back pass. And I'll be going, because Mo's running onto it. But he's not getting there, but it's the fact that he puts... When you've got a player as quick as Mo Salah, it forces defenders to make mistakes, especially when you've got Bobby pressing them. But it's like, you you yeah. have to be... You can't take the easy way out with Mo Salah because he yeah. he gets in your mind. No, he's, he's one, of, he he's one of a handful... Of, he's one of a handful of players in the Premier League that have that, like, different, difference-making, scary speed. Like, I saw a clip uh, the other day of... Uh, of Walker and he, he like misplayed a pass and then he almost tracked down his own pass because like, he's, he's that fast, right? So yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, you're right on Tom. I mean, Salah just doesn't need to time his run. He can tell the defender when he's going to run and it doesn't make a difference. So, so that's I sort really of just sti- stylistically, <laughs> that's, that's the huge contrast between him and, and those other two errors. I think the other thing is the, the 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 type of movement they do as well. They don't necessarily just run in behind the defense. What they'll do is they'll drag the defense a bit. They'll make it very very difficult for the defense to know what they're going to do. Whereas with Torres and Suarez, it was a little bit more, when am I going to go? Rather than what am I going to do? It was more of a time. As you say, it's more of a timing thing. It's like when are they going to go? What's the move they're going to make? Rather than a where are they going? Because with Suarez and Torres, there was a little bit of back and forth, but it was a bit more. How are they, you know, where, when are they going to do it? And they're sort of the, the angle rather than with Firmino, it's like, where is he going? Where is he going to end up? Is he going to be on the left? Is he going to be on the right? And I mean, to be fair, with Suarez, that was something Suarez did quite a lot of as well. Suarez was very good at the sort of the, the Firmino element of 
creating space for other people. That's why I think Sturridge benefited so well from playing with him. And this is something we've seen from Sturridge, from Sturridge throughout his Liverpool career. He benefits from having some from playing with someone else because when a, when defenders have got two strikers to deal with and one of them is Luis Suarez, that generates space and time for Sturridge to get in positions to score goals, for Sturridge to get the ball in areas where he's not necessarily being marked as tightly. That's why he tends to struggle potentially in a one. And especially when, especially when you factor in when Sturridge is playing a lot of the time, either Firmino isn't, or more importantly, Firmino's not playing as the striker. And I think that's why we've seen Sturridge struggle. Because when Firmino's not playing as the striker, the team is missing that space generator. It's Because Mane and Salah and Sturridge are all very similar types of player. They all like to make the same kinds of moves. What you need is a Bobby Firmino who does something a bit different. And that's where I think, as I say, Firmino is probably more comparable to Suarez because he does the sorts of space-creating things that maybe um, someone like Sturridge needs or someone like Salah needs. I don't think Salah necessarily creates space with others except in the sense that he's so quick when he makes his runs, defenders have to kind of follow him, whereas I think it's a bit different. He doesn't have the sort of... I've talked about Salah's movement. I think Salah's movement is phenomenal. I don't think it's tricky, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, and the other thing that we miss about Stevie and you know, another topic that we've talked about a lot on these pods is the sort of gamesmanship aspect of uh, or whether it's lacking or not in Klopp's teams. But um, when, with Stevie and also at the level that Coutinho was starting to get to with their free kicks, you started to see the rest of the team around them being aware of that and you know, not only trying to draw penalties, but trying to draw just free kicks that were in a particular area that was a strength for Stevie or Phil to, uh, to hit him in from. And, uh, you know, that was amazing to see in that 13, 14 season as well. Just, those guys could just, you know, it was so easy for Sturridge to, uh, get, you know, quote unquote tripped by somebody, <laughs> you know, 20 yards out or something. And that, and it was like a easy conversion for, for Stevie from that distance, you know. Yes, I know. I completely agree. I mean, if you look at, I think Sadio is probably the best at that. Actually, it's one of the elements of Sadio's game. I think it's been a little bit underrated this season, which is he's very, very good at drawing the fouls in that sort of area for Phil to step up and finish. Um, okay, well, I think we've pretty much covered everything we wanted to cover in this part. Is there anything you wanted to add on the the, the partnerships topic? Actually, I'll hit you with the, hit you with the question. Go on. Uh, who who is out of the three? We'll, we'll stick with the three out of Torres, Gerard. Suarez, Sturridge, and um, Firmino and Salah. Which one is your favourite? I mean, for that one year, I mean, Suarez and Sturridge, it has to be like, they're just like, I don't even know what to say about that. I was just, there was a lot of screaming that went on in my New York apartment uh, in those days watching Liverpool play uh, in the early in the morning a lot of times. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, they're just incredible and just the way that they could find each other from opposite sides of the pitch sometimes and um you know and also uh sterling's contribution to that was amazing and um yeah fun to watch so yeah it's too bad none of them are on the team anymore <laughs> yeah yeah i can't disagree it's annoying i want to say i really want to say bobby and mo but i think you're, i think you're right actually i think we're right with what you said earlier if they get us to a champions league semi-final we might start to see them in the same light but until they so we get to that stage where they're actually winning us well coming close to winning us trophies should I say I, I personally think they will win us trophies if they both stick around for another year I think we'll win something next year but it's just yeah I mean just to, just to sort of like put a bow on it and bring it back to the original topic I mean if we could just get uh, you know a fourth player for that front line that they can just have a rotation for next year and they all can all stay fresh for a whole season uh, and have another player that the you know, maybe bring something slightly different, but can can rotate the same way that these guys do. Um, that would be, you know, take it up even another level. It doesn't seem possible to me that we could cut that level. It really doesn't. It's just crazy. <laughs> well, I just, I just, like, in terms of our attack, in terms of our front three, I look at this front three and I go, how can we possibly improve that? I think it's what's behind it that we need to work on. Um, anyway, Adam, uh, thank you so much for coming on, mate. Uh, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, there's a new article that I was referencing. is called uh, Can Liverpool Balance Infrastructure and Intent? And uh, yeah, aside from that, uh, keep on listening to the pods. And um, thanks for having me on.
Yeah, no pleasure having you on, mate. I've got a um another podcast out. I did the uh the Anfield Extra podcast with uh with Guy Drinkle and Ollie Emerson post uh Porto. That was obviously fun because we won five 0 We were all in a really good mood, as you can imagine, we were want to be. Um, and uh, I've also got an article coming out soon. I think it's coming out at some point over the weekend. Um, about um how the Porto win make kind of is a statement about how we are back at Europe's top table and we are back to being one of those big clubs and we are not we're not just the placeholders in the Champions League this year we're not just here to 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 be in to make up the numbers we are actually a club that is going to compete for major honours over the next few years if we can keep up this form we're gonna basically basically re-establishing that we are not just gonna you know we're gonna be a team that is going to be competing at the top level uh with that kind of win um so yeah uh thank you very much for coming on adam and uh Thank you very much for listening. We shall be back next week. Not sure exactly when yet, but probably back end of the week again. Uh, No Liverpool game this weekend, which is a shame. So we're just going to have to find other ways to entertain ourselves this weekend. And uh, back for West Ham in about eight days' time. Okay, see you then. Podcast Network.